Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We made this. Welcome back, everybody, to the Movie Palace. I'm your host, as ever, Carl Sweeney, and welcome back to the final week of our Summer of Psycho miniseries. So we've been talking so far exclusively about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, uh, but this week we're going to do something slightly different. So today we're going to talk about Gus Van Sant's Psycho from 1998, starring Vince Vaughn and Anne Hesch. And I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast once again by Darren Mooney. Hey, Darren. Hey, how are things? You know, this is almost like a remake of the shower podcast we did. Let's see if we can do this shot for shot. Word for word, yeah. <laughs> In an audio medium. Just trust us, listeners. We're doing it shot for shot. Yeah. Can we recapture the magic is the question. Yeah. Um, no, I'm delighted to have you back. Pulling a, du- a double shift uh, on the Summer of Psycho, Darren. Um, uh, appropriately enough for the discussion that we're about to have. But yep, absolutely yeah. thrilled to be here. Um, and again, this is a fascinating film to discuss. I think when we when we closed last time, I think the adjective that I used to describe the 1998 Psycho was fascinating. And I stand by that, mm. having watched both it and a various amount of kind of supplementary material around it as well. It is a fascinating piece of pop culture. It really is. It really is. So... I'm proposing that to begin with, I think I could, uh, if I could be so bold, I'd like to borrow a leaf from uh, your book over at the 250 with this first question. Just a very simple question, because I know this is what you ask um, to your guests on the 250, but I think it's entirely possible there are listeners of this podcast who are, you know, admirers of the Hitchcock Psycho, for one reason or another, have never seen the Van Sant Psycho, maybe because they don't want to, or just for whatever reason. So, uh, Darren, and before we get too specific, you know, in very simple terms, would you recommend the Gus Van Sant Psycho to any listeners out there who haven't seen it? Should they pause the podcast and go away and watch the Van Sant? <laughs> uh, it's interesting to have this flip back on myself. Um, very simply depends on what you're looking to get out of it. As a piece of entertainment, no. As a summer, you know, as a film, <laughs> no. As a, as kind of like a a monument or kind of like horror movie slasher movie that delivers thrills or excitement, no. Um, on those terms, absolutely not. But yeah. as a pop culture relic, as an 
artifact as a snapshot of a moment in time but also arguably again something that exists as a pop art kind of monument i would say yes i think that if you are interested in cinema if you are interested in culture in general if you're interested in like philosophical ideas about the you know the, the spontaneity or the spark or the the essence of a film and whether or not that can be boiled down to constituent elements like say the soundtrack the framing the composition the script the dialogue whether or not you know if you want to kind of touch on that and kind of explore the idea of where magic exists in film and in celluloid i think that the 1998 version of psycho is a fascinating artifact and to be absolutely clear as a counterexample. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we'll probably talk about this in, in more depth in, in a moment, but it's a film that, you know, I, I think I first saw it when it was released or when it came out in home video. I think I saw it with my parents. Uh, we would have done a movie night watching it. Um, and because we, we rented whatever was out that week, you know, and, and we mm-hmm. saw some great films that way. We saw The Matrix that way. We saw The Truman Show that way. But we probably saw Psycho that way because I'd definitely seen it before. And it made absolutely no impression horrendously i'm going to concede here i may actually have seen the 1998 film before i saw the 1960 film that's shock horror yeah um and i think like again the thing about the 98 film watching it first is that it left absolutely no impression on me (laughs) i i know that i've seen it before i can't precisely pinpoint when and i'm just guessing based on my movie going habits around 98 99 when it's likely that i would have seen it um and again like it it made absolutely no impression but coming back to it for the context of this podcast and coming back to it having obviously rewatched the 1960 psycho recently as well but also approaching it and again maybe we'll talk about this in in a bit more depth later on but in the context of 2020 as opposed to 1998 in a world where Mm -hmm. we have seen a an emergence of a kind of cinema that you know psycho 1998 psycho 98 let's just call psycho 98 predicted for better or for worse and perhaps entirely unintentionally it kind of it stands out as something that is striking it's something that is i think worth seeing if you are interested in the mechanics of cinema um, and the idea of cinema it's not something I would recommend if you just want a good movie that you want to sit down, watch and enjoy. Um, and I think ironically, I'd, I'd recommend Psycho 1960, the original, on both of those terms. I think that it's a wonderful yes. work of art, but I think it's also a fantastically made film. It's a very interesting question. Would I recommend this film to people who haven't seen it? Because basically, I think there may well be people listening who think that the just the very idea of remaking Psycho is sacrilegious, <laughs> you know. Do I think that someone who holds that view is going to be won over if they stop the podcast now <laughs> and go and see the Van Sant version? Almost certainly not, I think. But you get the satisfaction of knowing you're right, though, Carl. It's true. I can only offer my own view on this, which is that I think two things. That A, I think Psycho 1960 is one of the most fascinating films. I think it's a good word. Fascinating. Uh, to come out of the American film industry. And B, Psycho 98, I think, is also one of the most fascinating films to come out of the same industry. Now, one is undoubtedly much more accomplished than the other. I still hold that both things are true. And yeah, on entertainment value alone, I I can't wholeheartedly answer yes to the the original question. I would, however, encourage you to keep listening to the podcast under all (laughs) circumstances, uh, whether you go away and watch the film or not. So, Darren, I think, so what I think is this. I think that Hitchcock was able to kind of square the circle in a way that Van Sant doesn't quite manage to. I think Hitchcock had these experimental impulses that he managed to marry with his crowd-pleasing credentials. So he's able to kill the star, break the rules. That, you know, we talked about the 180 rule in the shower scene before. 
uh, play around with who the viewer's kind of identifying with. And he managed to do all of those things and bring the general audience along with him. Now, I think what Van Sant's trying to do with the Psycho remake, it's also a very experimental impulse that he's trying to run within the commercial realm in some ways. So let's do this very faithful remake of a classic film. It's much more faithful than most remakes, and it's of a film that's held in much higher esteem than most films generally are. You know, let's put it in colour. Let's use well-known actors from the present day. I think what happens here, and I think this is kind of what you're saying too, I think the experimental side is much more interesting here than the commercial one. I think as a theoretical exercise, this is a very interesting film because of the dialogue it kind of runs with uh, between itself and the original. As an involving narrative in its own right, I think Psycho 98 is notably less successful. But I don't know about you, I just can't help but admire the attempt, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that Van Sant has, well, first of all, Van Sant was a huge uh, fan of Hitchcock and Psycho throughout his career. I think that you can trace back his fascination with reproducing Psycho back to, I think it was an art house or student film he made called Psycho Shampoo. Uh, which, as oh, the yeah. title imply, implies, kind of is a shot-for-shot recreation of the shower scene from Psycho with the punchline that it's actually an advertisement for shampoo uh, that you use in the shower. I think that, yeah, Van Sant has kind of described this as... He's compared it to the work of Andy Warhol, painting a kind of a Campbell's soup, kin, a soup tin. And it very much feels like it's that kind of aspect, because he's talked about how he had wanted to do this, I think, since 1988 at least, uh, because he talked about wanting to do it for a decade leading up to the actual like film itself. He managed to do this, and this is kind of this is the thing that you mentioned with the experimental aspect that I am absolutely in awe of, right? So, Goodwill Hunting, uh, which mm-hmm. was his big kind of breakout hit, his smash success, the point at which you get to go to a studio and say, "I would like to do X," and you can pretty much get away with it. And so he went to Universal, who were like, "Yeah, we'd, we'd love to sign you. We love Goodwill Hunting. It made a shed load of money, won a shed load of Oscars. We want to be in the Gus Van Sant business." And Gus Van Sant says, "Actually, you know what I want to do." You guys are always talking about remaking B-movies and forgotten classics and sort of revamping them and taking an old concept and reworking and reinventing it for the modern era. I'd like to do is take a film that everybody agrees is a classic and not really update it, but like literally shot for shot remake it. And again... Various people involved have kind of framed the metaphor in different ways. I think that uh, Robert Forrester's kind of talked about how it was, he saw it as similar to kind of a repertoire theatre, you know, like yeah. performing something like Hamlet. Like if you're performing Hamlet, you don't necessarily have to change it in order for the, you know, the play to have the same impact. Uh, but it is very much kind of, it is an experimental film. And it's amazing that he got a $60 million budget to do this. Yeah. And again, it's something that's very, very 1998 about this. Cause around the same time that Universal were spending $60 million on a shot for shot color <laughs> remake of the classic Alfred Hitchcock movie, Psycho over a Paramount, you had like the Truman show taking place, which was described like within the studio by executives who had no idea what was going on as a $60 million art house film. It's kind mm-hmm. of interesting that you had this kind of weird, moment at the turn of the millennium where you had studios having no idea what they're doing just trusting directors with large sums of money to do things that they didn't entirely understand i think the truman show turned out brilliantly i think this 
did not. But I think that it's still a fascinating kind of impulse. And again, in the context of 1998, a couple of things to note that are kind of worth attention. First of all, you had a large industry around Hollywood kind of re-releasing films. Now, obviously, re-releasing films is a big part of Hollywood history. Films like, for example, Gone with the Wind being in constant circulation for decades, Disney opening its vaults and cinematic re-release and all that sort of stuff. But in the 90s, you had a particular brand of kind of re-releasing where they're releasing older films. So things like, say, the Star Wars trilogy being re-released, for example, leading up to the release of The Phantom Menace in 99. But even things like, I think that in the 90s, Hitchcock, four of Hitchcock's films, including Psycho and including Rope and Vertigo were also theatrically re-released as well and I think that in 1998 of all years I think in September uh, if I remember correctly um, Touch of Evil a remastered cut of Touch of Evil actually earned more money per theatre and again very important to say per theatre there but more money per theatre <laughs> yeah. uh, than uh, Rush Hour in its opening weekend as well Interesting and you have kind of like this this culture of kind of going back and revisiting. But you also, again, in the late 90s, you have this idea of kind of remakes and sequels kind of creeping in. What will become kind of standard. And again, this is why I say that watching Psycho 98 is very different now than on release. Because in release, you know, it was arguably, you know, an example of a of an emerging trend. So, you know, in the context of things like, say, Tom Cruise remaking Mission Impossible with Brian De Palma, for example, or, you know, various other kind of films that were being released and kind of sequels that were coming out and recycled properties, yeah. like even Wild Wild West starring Will Smith around the same time in the summer, that sort of stuff. Uh, or, you know, you, comic book movies like the Batman movies, which were huge during the 90s. And, you know, these are still seen as being movies that coexisted with other movies. It's like it was yeah. it was one thing that Hollywood was doing. It wasn't the only thing that Hollywood was doing. And so Psycho felt like a kind of like a really pitch black kind of comic version of that trend pushed yeah. to its kind of logical extreme where it's not like, OK, we're going to remake this classic 60s TV show, but we're going to cast Tom Cruise and we're going to hire Brian De Palma and Brian De Palma is going to do like his Hitchcock impression on it. This was actually like, no, no, no. People really like the 1960 one. So let's go back and reconstitute all of its elements as faithfully as possible and then serve that up. And again, I think I, I mentioned this in my review of the movie in question two years ago. And it's actually funny when I mentioned I was talking about Psycho online. Uh, the first thing that somebody got back to me and said was, watching Psycho 98 now feels uncannily like watching a Disney live action adaptation of one of their animated properties. Something yeah. like Aladdin or The Lion King. I think in that sense, it's aged remarkably well. Uh, I think there was also something else in the air in 1998, wasn't there? Because um, there was a remake to Rear Window that year with Christopher Yes, on Reed. television. Yep. Uh, and then the cinematic remake of Dial M for Murder, uh, retitled A Perfect Murder with Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, which I think Viggo Mortensen is also in. He's in the Psycho remake, of course, <laughs> as <laughs> Sam. So the interesting thing with Psycho, of course, is I think you used the, the phrase shot by shot. You also, you know, you hear frame by frame, scene by scene, whatever. Uh, it's that, isn't it? So... For instance, from Roger Ebert's review of the time, uh, the opening paragraph, the most dramatic difference between Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Gus Van Sant's shot-by-shot remake is the addition of a masturbation scene. That's appropriate because this new Psycho evokes the real thing in an attempt to recreate remembered passion. He also goes on to say, the movie is an invaluable experiment in the theory of cinema because it demonstrates that the shot-by-shot remake is pointless. Genius apparently resides between or beneath the shots or in chemistry that cannot be timed or counted. I don't know. I think... There's an element here, though, of you have to, it's the old D.H. Lawrence phrase, you have to trust the tale, not the teller, you know, because Van Sant's Psycho, in my opinion, is more different to Hitchcock's than people 
often allow. I think Ooh. shot by shot is not exactly right. I don't know. What what did you think, having rewatched both fairly recently? Well, it's interesting because, again, I'd, I'd rewatched, you know, you, you mentioned something being in the air. And I mean, I mentioned yeah. the idea that Vincent had gone back and he said, you're always remaking crap movies. What if you tried to remake a great movie? Yeah. Um, I recently rewatched um, the 1962 and the 1991 versions of Cape Fear, mm. uh, which are arguably kind of an interesting control case for this. Because, again, you know, you have, I think, Jay Lee uh, Thompson, who obviously I think he works as a dialogue coach under Hitchcock, heavily influenced by Hitchcock. And you can see like Bernard Herrmann providing the score for Cape Fear for example the editing was done by one of Hitchcock's kind of favorite editors as well and the production design so you know you could argue that Cape Fear in 1962 was related a sibling perhaps of Psycho or kind of a close relative of it and so like you have in 1991 Martin Scorsese going back and remaking Cape Fear and remaking it in a way that very much updates it for the sensibilities of 1991 it's very much kind of changes it and I think that that's interesting because it says something about the relationship. I think one of the interesting kind of trends in, in 90s pop culture, and arguably even continues through today, is this debate that we have about the relationship between the present and the 60s, particularly in American culture. I think it's something American yeah. culture is very fixated about because you have this idea of the 60s as a moment that changed or, or perhaps led to a schism in American culture. You know, this divide between left and right, for example. And I mean, if you want to talk about the 90s, you have things like, for example, the Clinton impeachment, which was largely sold as an example of 60s liberalism gone too far. But even, say, in, in American popular cinema, think of things like Forrest Gump uh, winning the Oscar in 1994 for Best Picture or 1995 for Best Picture, yeah. uh, which was, you know, largely, if you watch the film, it often reads as a repudiation of the idea of the 60s. I think Maureen Dad and the New York Times argued that the Republicans tried to repeal the 60s during the 90s. And so you have this kind of tension and anxiety around the relationship between the 90s and the 50s and the 60s. Again, you arguably see that in, in 1998 in, say, The Truman Show as well, which deals with similar themes, or Pleasantville, which deals with similar themes as well. I think it's kind of interesting that you have, with movies like Cape Fear and with movies like Psycho, mm-hmm. you have taking films from the 60s that are very much and i i would argue that both psycho and cape fear are about kind of those latent fears of a, a changing or shifting culture and an anxiety around that you know i mean i think psycho is very much like the, the world of the 60s is much more chaotic terrifying and abstract than you know the world of the 50s or the world of the 40s appeared to be to americans and kind of like translating that to 1998 um as opposed to something like cape fear which does something similar and i think that what you have with Cape Fear is you have Scorsese actually looking at this and interrogating that and going, well, our fears in the 90s reflecting our fears in the 60s are inherently different. They're connected, but they're not exactly the same. And they don't Mm -hmm. translate one for one, but there is a clear connection. I think watching Psycho, which is kind of, you know, the, the flip side of that coin, it often feels like the movie, the movie despite the fact that it's very pointedly set in 1998, you have the introductory title card, which tells you it's Friday 11th December 1998. You have little moments like Julianne Moore arriving wearing headphones and saying, I'll get my Walkman, yeah, Um, (laughs) which marks it as a movie that exists in 1998. You have shots of, as you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the biggest difference being Vince Vaughn masturbating, but you also have, like, shots of Anne Hesch derriere and sort of, not Vince Vaughn, sorry, Viggo Mortensen's derriere quite early in the film as well. But outside of that, it really, watching it, it it feels kind of almost 
almost like it's striving to be more 60s than the original i'm thinking of say the use of color i'm thinking of things like say um the fact that in the original psycho which was shot in black and white which was arguably kind of on its way out in 1960 as a trend uh in that you know i mean i think that was around the same time the apartment became the last black and white best picture winner up until the artist or up until schindler's list but i do think that you have like in 1998 the use of color is very ironically feels like it's harking back to the 60s so in psycho you have like say uh, janet lee's sort of classic black and white sort of uh undergarments which kind of serve as a kind of illustration of you know how she is at a given moment you know good and evil good and bad this dichotomy that exists but in contrast you have hesh playing marion crane and she feels like she's cosplaying as a kind of a 60s person um she's wearing these kind of pastel colors like these greens these blues these oranges these bright pinks um and you know these sunglasses which look kind of designer and it's kind of interesting because it it feels like van sant isn't updating the movie for the 60s for the 90s he's more taking a movie from 1960 and kind of almost reinventing it within the 90s memories Mm. of the 60s, which is is an interesting kind of dissonance, I think, there. Yeah, I was thinking just in simpler terms where I think some of these um, descriptions like shot by shot are a bit of a misnomer. So most obviously, as you've alluded to, it's in colour, it has a contemporary setting, and because of that we get some very obvious changes. $40,000 becomes uh, $400,000. Inflation. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, and I think, what is it, $36.50 to check into the base (laughs) motel instead of $10, yeah. and there are these a few egregious additions, like the kind of thing Ebert reverse to with the masturbation. I think it goes a bit beyond that. I think there are some scenes that are actually staged quite differently. I think that opening hotel scene, if you were to put them side by side, uh, the way the characters are posed, the way that the camera is placed is very different to the, the Hitchcock Psycho. And the ambient sound as well. Like you can yeah. hear people having sex in the room next door and stuff like that or shouting through the walls as well. Yeah, exactly. There's also the reason scene by scene is not an accurate description is because there's a scene outside the church in the original film that Van Sant uh, cuts out entirely in this one. Um, line by line isn't right. There are scenes with new dialogue, with old dialogue cut out, with you know like things brought up to date, like we've already mentioned. I think the casting is interesting. I think that's it too. I think the casting decisions inescapably alter some of the meanings yeah. the film generates. Not just the casting, but the way that the performers, having been cast, then choose to interpret the material is in some cases very different from the way the 60s cast approach to characters. And the running time, like it's the original Psycho, I believe, is 109 minutes. Yeah. Now, the Van Sant Psycho is 103 minutes, and that's with a modern-style end credit sequence where they actually credit the people who worked on the film beyond the most you know, esteemed uh, people. Yeah. Um, so it'd be silly of me to sit here and say, this film is nothing like the 1960 Psycho. It absolutely is, but... I think a lot of the commentary that stresses the similarities often as a way to damn the film, to dismiss it, uh, has kind of overlooked the fact that it's not as straightforward a shot-by-shot remake as it is in the popular imagination. I don't know. Does that make sense? I I can kind of see that, but I think a lot of the the kind of differences that you allude to there are almost kind of incidental and almost arguably the the point. I think I kind of, when I mentioned recommending it, I was like, you know, it, it illustrates by, as a counterexample, you know, the idea that, and again, that meant that thing that Ebert suggested where the magic of film yeah. is arguably below the frame or behind the frame or obscured at the edge of the frame. It's not something that you capture on screen where you can see kind of like you can see Van Sant like going shot for shot at certain points. And again, there, yeah. there are lots of 
really great examples of kind of like editors uh, taking the films and putting them side by side. I think last night you watched uh, Psychos by Steven Soderbergh, yes. uh, which edits the two films together. It's remarkable. We might talk a little bit more about that later on. But mm-hmm. what, what Soderbergh does, which is fascinating and I think speaks to what Vincent's doing, is he, you know, often he alternates between the scenes from the two movies, but at times he can literally cut between them. As in, yeah. like, go from a shot of one character looking at another character across the different versions, across time and space, which speaks to how carefully Vincent kind of frames and composes his images and stuff like that. But I think that even beyond that, you have stuff like, I think, Matt Scuta, um does did an excellent kind of 15-minute video on YouTube where he plays particular scenes from the two versions, like, on top of one another. So you can see, you know, where Vincent has, has perfectly lined up with the, mm-hmm. with the film in terms of the rhythm of going cut, 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 dialogue, 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 reaction shot, reaction shot, close up, two shot, that sort of stuff, that sort of rhythm and structure, and where maybe there's a bit of difference. I think actually what you were suggesting, which is interesting, and again, part of me wonders, I suspect Vincent is smart enough to get that this is the point of it. Uh, I think Vincent yeah. is a very, very shrewd writer and director. I think he's he's very he's a canny filmmaker. He's a really, really great filmmaker, to be absolutely clear. Um, and I think that when he talks about the film, the way he talks about the film, and particularly in reference to pop art, um, mm-hmm. makes it very clear that he knows, or at least you know, what he did was not entirely an accident. But you mentioned the casting. Um, and again, maybe we'll talk about the casting in a bit more depth in a moment. But like to pick a couple of very obvious examples of kind of like the way in which small choices kind of ripple through and show that it is impossible to faithfully recreate the 1960s yeah. psycho. Like I think that I think that Vincent is trying. And I think that Vincent knows that he cannot. And I think yeah. that knowing that he cannot while trying is the entire point of the exercise. But to pick a couple of small examples there, stuff like, say, the casting of Vince Vaughn. And, and we'll talk about Vaughn in a, in a moment, maybe, in, like, in terms of like his star persona and his performance. But just practically, just physically, Vaughn is like six foot five inches, which is significantly taller than Perkins. Hesh is significantly short. I, I don't know if she's significantly shorter, but she's visibly shorter than Lee, yeah. which means when you put the two characters in shot together for those two shots, which happen throughout the, you know, throughout the first couple. 40 minutes of the movie or whatever where they're at the motel the dynamic between the two actors is fundamentally changed without even getting into their performances just in terms of physicality within the exact same composition that Hitchcock used the two actors standing opposite one another talking to one another because two actors the same size uh, talking to one another is inherently different from two actors of markedly different heights and you can see it even throughout where you know Vincent will emulate or evoke a particular shot from Hitchcock's original but because Vaughn is so large um, he cannot place the camera in the same space and get the same effect I'm thinking for example of the scenes where they have dinner together you know in behind the office or in sorry in the office behind the lobby uh, where you know in Hitchcock's original in 1960s Perkins kind of like shrinks into the background you have this wonderful deep focus shot of all the kind of stuffed animals and the artwork on the wall that give you this very gothic atmosphere and the sense of kind of Norman Bates as somebody who is you know arguably as much a part of this macabre menagerie as the birds themselves but because Vaughn is so large sitting in these chairs almost comically almost seeming to shrink into them um, it's harder to accomplish that deep focus shot and so you end up with Vaughn dominating the frame which presents a very different idea of who Norman Bates is even kind of just as a visual so I, I think that maybe I don't entirely 
agree with you that it is it is radically different but i think that you you were very you're entirely correct to point out that it is different that vincent was probably aware of those differences i just think that those differences tended to arise um accident not accidentally accidentally makes it sound like it was a mistake naturally they arrive mm. from you know the result of you know trying to emulate or faithfully recreate the past but the simple reality that you know you can't the only perfect replica of of a 1960 psycho is going to be a print of the 1960 psycho so to be clear it's not that i'm saying this is radically different i'm saying i think it's more different than people often uh, imagine it to be so let's let's talk about some of the cast maybe that's how we can get into this i think so I think that there's a big issue with the Marion character here. And I think that to solve it, I think Van Sant either could have stuck closer to the Hitchcock film in a couple of ways or departed from it more radically. Like I said, I don't think he does that. I think there are some differences. So you end up in a kind of unsatisfying midpoint almost. So I think in the 1960 psycho, I think we understand why Marion and Sam feel like they have to meet in this hotel room. You know, he's divorced, societal standards are more restrictive. In the 1998 Psycho, it's much less clear to me why their relationship is apparently so taboo. You know, it's almost 40 years later, attitudes have changed, and so on. And this is a big city. It's not like a small town setting. It's Phoenix, you know? So I think there's a story hurdle there that a viewer unfamiliar with Psycho might have a bit of a problem buying into. Ironically, I think it might work slightly better for those of us who know the original film because we have those associations already. So I can choose to go with it, but I think immediately we get this problem with the narrative, and it's unclear to me whether Van Sant is using that to make a point, like nothing has really changed or something, or whether it's just a function of updating the story in the way that he's chosen to do. So if it's part of his experiment, that's all well and good. But I think it means that Marion's motivation is not established as effectively as it could be. Now, it may be that it would have worked better as a story in its own right if he had remade Psycho and still set it in 1960, or if the present-day scenario is altered more visibly, you know, maybe Marion and Sam could be a same-sex couple or something, and then maybe it makes more sense why they're kind of scurrying around in hotel rooms. Yeah. Or Marion's married or whatever, or something. Yeah, yeah, something, like that, or yeah. something. But as it is, I find it a bit unsatisfying, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and I, I kind of, I, I agree with that. I tend to, again, this is one of the things where I'm wary of how much of this is part of the experiment, inverted commas, yeah. but I do think that it, it serves to illustrate the point of that translation or adaptation where it's like it takes itself so literally it yeah. it translates so literally from like 1960 to the present that you end up with and again this is something that happens throughout where so much of the 1960 psycho was based around the idea that it was novel and strange and unusual and compelling and shocking and startling and new and horrifying and kind of again tapping into that sense at the you know at the edge of the 60s that something radical was happening in american culture and again we, we talked about it where we talked about stuff like you know hitchcock's promotion of the film without showing any footage of the film assuring viewers yeah. that it was so horrifying that he couldn't do it in good conscience or whatever or even things like you know the famous like you can't arrive late to psycho you have to be barred and sort of you know you have to see it from the start all the way through and when we talked about the shower scene you know just even little details like in 1960 how shocking it would be to kill your protagonist and how nobody really expected that um at the time and how it caught everybody off guard and again that's that's largely the point and appeal of the 1960 psycho and what you have in in the 1998 is the exact inverse of that where the entire selling point of the movie 
is the fact that it isn't radical, it isn't new, it isn't shocking or startling. It's yeah. exactly what you've had before. And again, that, that kind of gets at, at the thing that you mentioned there, which is like in 1960, this idea of the, you know, this couple having, you know, sex uh, in a hotel room where they yeah. pay by the hour um, is horrifying and kind of a sign about how society, you know, is is not what it used to be. We're not held together by the kind of wholesome values that we thought we were. This is radical. And in 1998, it's a real sense of, as you point out, who cares? Um, you know, it, yeah. things have, have moved on to the degree that we, we, you know, we are more accepting of the fact that, you know, people outside of marriage sometimes have sex, as crazy as that idea might be. Um, or the idea that, you know, it's possible for a woman to be in love with a divorced man who is paying alimony and perhaps mm-hmm. has debt. And, you know, the fact that that's can be a perfectly functional and happy relationship. And there is nothing wrong with that. And so you, you do have that kind of interesting dissonance uh, that the film... And again, this is the one where I wonder if I'm being too charitable, where it's almost illustrating that as much as Van Sant is trying to preserve Psycho as a moment in time, time itself around the movie has moved on and you have to yeah. adjust for that. And you can't treat it. You can't You can't do it exactly. You can't go home again, basically. You can't yeah. do it exactly as you did in 1960. And again, you know, not, not to keep going back to, say, Cape Fear as a counterpoint, but you have that with Cape Fear, where Scorsese takes the core fears of the 1962 Cape Fear. You know, themes of kind of sexuality, sexual awakening, and sexual violence, and very much brings them to 1991 in a way that is as tough to watch in 91 as the original was in 62. And in doing so, changes it and make something that is at once both old and new simultaneously and with the psycho remake with that with even that basic choice you have this idea of something that was just a little bit provocative and a little bit out there in 1960 now seems positively tame um and kind of illustrates that you know psycho was a product of its time, you know, and I, I say this loving Psycho and thinking that Psycho 60 is one of the best movies ever made and think it's a fantastic piece of entertainment even now. But I think that like the maximal impact that it had culturally was, ir- you know, irrevocably tied to the fact that it arrived when it did. Yeah. And I think that 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 choice, even the opening scene of like the 98 Psycho, as you pointed out, m- almost makes that point perfectly by taking the exact situation and you know and admittedly like as you pointed out layering a bit more on top of it in that the motel is a little bit seedier the characters are a little bit nakeder the the soundscape is a little bit more lurid but like the core basic dynamic is fundamentally the same and it it, it just it doesn't work it doesn't make sense it doesn't it doesn't fit mm. but i can buy that van san intends that you know my basic rule of thumb is that most people are smarter than i am and therefore that means most filmmakers are smarter than i am so the things i see on screen i assume unless i have good reason to otherwise that they're intentional yeah however there's some interesting stuff there so just on a basic level i think that holding the fact that psycho 98 is not as compelling as psycho 1960 i think holding that against the remake i can't say it's an unfair comparison because the, the remake invites that comparison just by existing but I totally agree. Very few films have achieved the same kind of impact that the original Psycho has. The impact that it had is inseparable from the fact that it was made by a particular director, it starred particular actors, and it was released at a particular point in time. And I think those are some of the things that 
maybe Ebert's alluding to when he talks about the genius of the film. However, there are lots of films that I think are good films without it being appropriate to bestow the term genius upon them. And I think that Psycho 98, it was never going to match the original Psycho, or it was very unlikely at least. It could have been a good film in the generally understood sense of the term. And I think that's why these story issues matter in terms of this particular film. So I feel similarly, for instance, about Anne Hesch's interpretation of Marion. I think she makes a very interesting choice here that amplifies some aspects that, to be fair, that were kind of inherent to the original uh, character Janet Lee played. So we know that the 60s Marion's impulsive because we see her steal the money, most obviously. We know that in the original film, her sister is not that surprised at what she did. Uh, by comparison to Sam, there's that scene where she kind of looks down at the floor when they're talking to Arbogast. Uh, it's like she can believe it's happened. But Lee's embodiment of Marion kept some of those things in reserve. And then Hesh seems to really lean into it, doesn't she? Like she's more overtly expressive in some of the scenes, like with Cassidy, the, the drunken uh, millionaire. Uh, that scene where she's packing up and she's almost got this kind of, oh, what am I doing <laughs> kind yeah. of vibe. And I think Hesh has said, like, to me, looking at that same behavior, this is what she said in an interview to uh, CNN. To me, looking at that same behavior, I'm going, this chick's a kook. I mean, what is she thinking? So I kind of took the metaphor of her being a bird to the extreme and thought, in today's world, she's an awful, flighty woman. Now, I think that's a very valid choice, and it's fascinating to watch it play out. At the same time, I think it leads to issues. I think the fact that Marion 1998 is not as like rattled by the policeman or by the car dealer, it does seem to cut across what the film needs to do to succeed most effectively as an entertaining narrative. Absolutely. And again, I think it's interesting that, you know, when Soderbergh edits the films together, he very consciously preferences Lee's performance over Hesh's uh, in that he tends to trust yeah. Hesh to give reaction shots primarily, but gives big, heavy dialogue scenes to Lee in the role. And I think it, it, it works in that sense. I actually found a similar interview where Hesh referred to uh, Crane as a lame brain, I think, which is as <laughs> much a 1999 relic yeah. as anything in the film itself. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree entirely. And I think that, yeah, I think that yeah, Hesh's performance doesn't really work. She she feels much more passive than, than Lee in some way. She feels like she just kind of goes with what's going on around her. Now, admittedly, that's probably because, again, the social context is radically different in mm -hmm. 1960 than it was in 1998, where, you know, the idea of kind of, you know, Marion Crane breaking bad, even impulsively in 1960, yeah. was, was kind of a crazy out there idea. Whereas, you know... 38 years later it's it's somewhat it's as you point out it does seem flighty rather than risky it does seem kind of you know a harebrained rather than impulsive it doesn't seem as radical again it just seems you know like a split second decision that hasn't really been thought through or processed and again it kind of ties into what you mentioned the idea that we don't buy the stakes in the loomis relationship either it's like mm. in in 1960 you understand that you know marion wants to be with him and wants to absolve his debt and wants to render him respectable even if the word sounds dirty in 1998 yeah. all of those stakes just evaporate and so what you're left with is an interpretation of a character which you know i think as you point out is a perfectly valid way of looking at it but which isn't supported by the film itself around her yeah. um and therefore you end up with this kind of contradiction which again i think is and and like you, I, I kind of I accept that most people are smarter than me and most filmmakers are smarter than me and most movies are smarter than me. So if I can figure out a way in which it works, that's probably what the director's going for. And I, I think that it does play into that dissonance where it's like you have a, a conception of Marion which is necessary to make Marion work as a character in a simple nuts and bolts way. In the way that, you know, an actor looks at what a character does and says the only way for these actions to make 
a causal link um, and to define a ca- or derive a character from the causal link between those actions is the performance I'm going to give you versus that performance in the context of a rigidly structured script uh, and story and direction around it. And mm. and they, they don't they don't click because Hesh is, is starring in a very different version of Psycho than the one that Vincent is trying to recreate. And yeah. and it you get that kind of dissonance. And again, we're gonna keep using the word dissonance, but that dissonance that runs throughout the film that I find again, another word we're using far too often, but fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating for other reasons, I think, as well, because um like I say, inescapably, the fact that it's a different cast alters the meaning. So, like, Hesh is a few years younger than Janet Lee was, only a few. But she'd also been, like, a known quantity in terms of as a star for a short time. Now, I think some of the unspoken subtext of Psycho is that there are these feelings of redundancy kind of creeping in for Marion. She's, like, she's almost at this point where society's telling her she should be settled, she should be married. So, like, when Cassidy turns up at the office and he kind of presses that home, he's talking about he's got, going to marry off his 18-year-old daughter. So I don't think that comes through as much in Hesh's performance, firstly, plus the fact that she's slightly younger. I think we're talking like three years younger. Plus the fact that she'd really only been a star for maybe a year or so at this point. You know, she'd been doing things for a few years, but I think 97, 98 was when her biggest roles kind of occur. Um, so her casting almost doesn't seem as perfect a fit as Lee's does, because Lee had been around for a while. Uh, audiences were familiar with her and so on. And there's also the fact that I think at the time, uh, Hesh was part of the, you know, what, what is arguably the first gay power couple in Hollywood with yeah. Ellen DeGeneres as well, which means that it's very hard to sell the idea of her as somebody who is particularly worried by, you know, respectability or by the, you know, the, this this very rigid, very socially conservative ideal of mm. what a relationship should be. And it kind of plays into that as well, which is, again, is another level of dissonance you have between star persona and, and what the film requires of a, of a kind of performer. Yeah, because I believe the argument has been made that like Van Sant's Psycho represents, quote unquote, like a queering of the original Psycho in some ways. You know, like it's made by an openly gay filmmaker in Van Sant. Like you say, a star who's in a high profile same sex relationship at the time the film was released. Also, there are some aspects of the film which maybe invite this interpretation. So the emphasis on the male body in the opening scene, greater than even in the original film, we see Sam's backside, don't we? And that's interesting because Hitch, uh, Van Sant chooses to um, solve a couple of things that Hitchcock wanted to do but couldn't in the film. So that opening um, shot into the hotel room from outside, Hitchcock had to do that in separate shots because he couldn't technically achieve... A... Couldn't get the camera in through the window. Yeah. Yep. Couldn't do it smoothly, um, for instance. And Hitchcock also has said, though, he, he w- would have liked to have had Marion bare-breasted in that hotel room scene. And he said that to Francois Truffaut. I think people knew about it. So it's interesting that Van Sant kind of plays to what Hitchcock wanted in some ways by rec- you know, by um, solving that opening shot. But yeah, he doesn't follow through on his wishes in that respect. Uh, it's also notable, I think, when we talk about the shower scene as well, he he also fulfills Hitchcock's wishes another way in that he doesn't have to cut away from Marion yeah. lying on the ground, which is notably one of the few, because, you know, you have that masterful long take that pulls back from Marion and then goes into yeah. the hotel room and then looks up at the house. And it's absolutely beautiful. And the version that appears in Psycho 1960 is absolutely beautiful and amazing, to be absolutely clear. But mm. in the take that they used, I think that, you know, Lee took a breath. So they have to cut in yeah. the middle of it to the shot of the shower running. And you can tell that, like, Van Sant you know, who clearly knows his Hitchcock, who clearly loves the film, was like, okay, Hitchcock didn't actually want that shot to be there. So he actually manages to pull that off in a single take without yeah. Hesh breathing as well. That's another kind of small corrective in inverted commas I find interesting. Yeah, there's no, there's a few. There's like um, in the scene with uh, Marion, the boss, and Cassidy, where she talks about um, 
it's the discussion about spending the weekend in Las Vegas. You know, well, I'm going to spend the weekend in bed. And then the guy comes back with, oh, it's the only playground that beats Las Vegas. And that was a line that was cut from the original film, for instance. And there are a few. So it's interesting what he doesn't choose to uh, to, to do that Hitchcock had, in, had kind of said that he might have liked to. Um, okay, so what about a bit more on Norman Bates then? So, yeah, just this idea that Vaughan, then, by casting Vaughan, he represents a more conventionally masculine figure than Perkins in some ways. Like, like you say, he's got a very different physical presence. So... It's weird, isn't it? Because to me, it seems like he presents a much more obvious, immediate threat than Perkins did. Because Perkins had that kind of underlying level of seemed like unassuming, seemed pleasant and normal. So again, is that that disconnect between what the film is actually doing and what it needs to do to succeed as a narrative? You know, and the thing is that the 1960s Psycho shows there need not be a trade-off necessarily in that area. I think for me, the thing with Vaughn beyond that though is I just don't think his acting is very good in this film. He gives Norman this chuckle, doesn't he? Yeah. It feels very put on and it always reminds me that I am watching a performance, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And again, this is one of the things where, and again, one of the things that I think that Psycho 98 proves is that you can't simply do a plug and play uh, in terms of like a faithful adaptation. Again, one of the things that we've seen in recent years in terms of pop culture, uh, particularly in nerd culture, is the idea that fidelity um, is the measure of a film's or an adaptation's worth or success. You know, you have this idea of like comic book adaptations and they're like, oh, but they don't accurately present the comics and therefore it's bad. Or things like, say, you know, people who, and I've seen it recently argued that things like, for example, the fact that Hugh Jackman never wore the costume from the comics means that his Wolverine is not the best Wolverine or not a good Wolverine uh, because it isn't textually faithful. I think that one of the things that's interesting about the casting of Norman Bates is that like and you can see like you can see if you squint and look at it from a distance and don't actually watch <laughs> the film itself. Like if you, if the film didn't exist um, yeah. and people were just like, oh, Gus Van Sant is going to remake Psycho and he's casting, you know, 1998's Vince Vaughn in the role of Norman Bates. You'd be like, huh, that's actually not an unreasonable approach to take to the casting of Norman Bates, right? Because what you have is in, in the 1960 version of Psycho, Perkins kind of stands out from the rest of the cast because his performance style isn't as mannered. He's a bit looser. He's a bit boyish. He's quite lanky. And you have this kind of sense of, you know, he's he's, he's kind of uncanny or uncomfortable. He doesn't feel like he belongs in the same movie as the rest of them until you figure out why that is. And so in 1998, you have Vince Vaughn, who is this embodiment of kind of young independent cinema Hollywood coming off the back of movies like, say, Swingers and, and Made, yeah. for example. You know, the future of Hollywood. He's this kind of young improvisational actor as well. Again, he's kind of, you know, perhaps a bit markedly different from the other actors in the cast. He's got a different performance style than people like, say, you know, Robert Forster, William H. Macy. You know, you could argue even, say, um, sorry, it was Philip Baker Hall as the sheriff, for example. Yep. You know, he, he's got a different kind of energy there than those guys. And you can kind of see, like, in theory... Like, if you were casting a role similar to Perkins in 1998, why Vaughn would be somebody you would roll the dice on and take a kind of a punt with. But it absolutely does not work (laughs) in any way, shape or form. And it doesn't work for all the reasons that you gave there, which is that, like, Vaughn... And and again, Vaughn is an actor I can take or leave. Uh, Ironically enough, I think he actually works relatively well when he's completely over the top i think that like his performance in the second season of true detective is a marvel that deserves to be seen by every human eye there's not many actors who can pull off you got blue balls 
in your heart <laughs> and, and somehow make it poignant. But Vaughn yeah. does. Uh, but here he's completely lost at sea. Here he just doesn't work. And again, what, what's interesting is in terms of that physical imposition. And again, it's kind of interesting because you mentioned the kind of queering of, of Psycho. Because one of the more interesting articles that I read, and I'm really sorry that I can't actually remember the name of the author to cite it. Uh, but one of the more interesting articles I read argued that one of the interesting things that that kind of Gus Van Sant does, and I'm wary of this because, you know, it feels a little bit essentialist and it feels a little bit like Gus Van Sant's a gay director and therefore you have to see his cinema through that lens. And, and maybe it's reductive and, and maybe it's unfair. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that is interesting about Psycho or his reimagining of Psycho, it's been suggested, is that it actually removes certain potential uh you know, homophobic subtext from the 1960 yeah. version. Um, so, for example, you know, you have the idea, the sequence of Vince Vaughn masturbating, uh, which, you know, is, is very much, it's a cudgel with which you can very, uh, you can beat the film like Norman beats himself, if you want, so to speak. Uh, apologies to listeners for that. <laughs> uh, but you, but it is basically, it is, it is a source of derision in terms of talking yeah. about the film. It's completely excessive, unnecessary, and something that even I find um, questionable as a creative choice. But um, the best argument for the inclusion of that scene that I've seen is the argument that it establishes that Norman Bates is actually sexually interested in Marion Crane. It confirms yeah. that he is heterosexual, um, that he's not, you know, gay or he's not particularly, you know, repressed or he's not kind of ashamed of being gay. That it's not like his crimes, which, you know, obviously are associated with transvestitism and therefore have that kind of lurid, potentially homophobic subtext, kind of have a little bit of that stripped away by confirming, no, uh, Norman Bates is actually a heterosexual man who just has sexual desires towards women and feels frustrated by the fact that he can't act on them rather than, you know, perhaps inferring the inverse from the relationship yeah. with his mother, um, which is, you know, a subtext that has been read into the 1960 psycho. I think that mm -hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned Vaughn, uh, you know, being much more physically imposing, much more conventionally masculine as well, and perhaps plays into that as well. Um, so you have an interesting kind of like, and again, maybe maybe it is that kind of queering that you mentioned there, where you have this movie that is directed by, you know, one of an open out gay filmmaker um, and will go on to direct movies like, for example, uh, Milk, you know, and it's starring yeah. an actor who at the time, Anne Hesch, is involved in one of the Hollywood's big open gay relationships. And you have the villain who is explicitly cast as a straight man um, and like who has arguably in this adaptation had, you know, the potential you know, homosexual subtext of what he does kind of toned down so as to make him much more conventionally heteronormative or heterosexual mm -hmm. um, and aggressive and kind of violent. So it is it is an interesting kind of way in which the movie changes around that. But yeah, I, I do think that, that the Norman Bates character here is nowhere near as interesting as he was in 1960. Yeah, definitely. No, it, it's very interesting to see what kind of meanings are displaced or replaced in the Van Sant Psycho. And in a lot of a lot of cases, I'm inclined, like I say, to give him the benefit of a doubt. You know, so like, I think there are things in the film, like Marion's lingerie changes, which was from white to black in the original film. Um, it's hard to imagine that Van Sant wasn't aware of the very simple meaning attached to that in in Hitchcock's film. But here we get from orange to, uh, green to orange. I think it just doesn't seem to have any kind of purpose. But I think that's probably the point. I yeah. think there is a sense of him removing the layers for a lot of this film. Like there's much less of a sense in terms of Norman that he's representing two sides of the same coin, which I think is what comes through in certain ways in the original. So 
I think when Norman and Sam face off, Perkins and John Gavin across the desk in the original, I think they're mirrored quite effectively uh, in a way that Vaughan and Mortensen are. I think at the same time, the, the interesting thing with Perkins was he could also be mirrored with Marion, and you know, and that's a large part of what's going on in the, the parlor scene. Yeah, uh, which makes it so great. You know, here's a woman we can identify with. The audience can readily accept her as being typical of the quote-unquote average woman. She's done something wrong, and she's now confronted with somebody who's in this kind of perverse reflection of her own, her own situation. They're both trapped. And then in the remake, I think Hesh's performance, as interesting as it is, is operating in kind of a different way. So is Vaughn's. And so that back and forth never really comes to life for me. And it's, again, it's just a very basic point I'll just return to. But I freely concede that it's unlikely that the parlor scene here would eclipse the 1960 version. I just think it feasibly could have worked better than it does. Yeah. I think I think ironically it's a much more conventional kind of like serial killer scene than the 1960 version in mm. that like the gender roles ironically in the 1998 psycho are arguably much more conventional in that you have you know that watching the 1960 version of psycho there's this charge between you know marion and norman where that you're not sure where the power dynamic kind of lies in the conversation whereas in the 1998 version it is immediately clear that like norman could possibly yes. reach across and just snap her neck uh with no mm. warning whatsoever there's this and and the way in which kind of again the actors play this where as marion grows more and more uncomfortable you can tell that like the fact that you know marion is realizing that norman is twice her size for example and you again you have that kind of sense and again it's something that's very typical of kind of like lesser slasher films than the 1960 version of psycho where you have that kind of real sense of you know the the very heterosexual kind of fear permeating beneath it this idea of kind of like possible sexual violence between a man and a woman where you know the man is is presented as somebody who is physically stronger and more imposing and the woman is trying to escape the conversation without provoking him you know that classic cliche yeah. of you know men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them which yeah. isn't i don't think is an element in the 1960s psycho during that sequence because you know norman is so you know quiet so small mm -hmm. so gentle so tucked away but i think that it is very much a part of the scene between hesh and vaughn because again even in terms of composition you don't have that deep focus vaughn doesn't disappear into the scenery instead he looms large yeah. and hesh is tiny in that sequence particularly like in comparison to the couch and particularly when she's in shot with vaughn even sitting down and so you have that kind of sense in which what was a signature scene in the 1960 original because it felt so unusual and so strange and played with the audience expectations of how a conversation like that was supposed to unfold. In 1998, the same conversation, largely, like largely quoting large portions yeah. of the same dialogue and even involving like many of the same camera positions, theoretically, and blocking, um, despite all that, manages to have a much more conventional uh much more straightforward and much more generic kind of feel to it, it it's it's again it, it's something that feels like a kind of an a, you know a piece of experimental cinema it's like if can mm. you take the same scene and change its meaning fundamentally despite using the same dialogue the same camera positions and arguably much of the same score as well although obviously um i think reorchestrated by danny elfman um, but it's 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 again that scene is is kind of like one of the great examples of that in the movie where the entire meaning of it changes and not yeah. necessarily in a way that flatters the film. 
Yes, and I think the age difference probably plays into that because I think I think Perkins is four or five years younger than Lee in Psycho nineteen sixty, but I think he feels he's twenty eight when he films Psycho, but I think he feels like he could be a bit younger than that even. Uh, I think Vaughn and Hesh are the same age, or maybe there's a year in it, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so I, get, I think that plays into it too. Uh, interestingly, the 98 trailer makes no attempt to disguise the fact that Norman is the titular psycho. I mean, obviously that makes sense, given the cultural impact that yeah. Hitchcock... Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think I, maybe the trailer served to shortchange the film as a film in its own right, though, but hey. Well, that's a question. Like, do we think that, like people who would have heard of psycho like the entire point of psycho 98 is that it's selling off the name recognition of psycho 1960 and i mean even if you haven't seen psycho you know 1960 and you know even before i had seen psycho 1960 i knew the twists i knew that you know marion dies halfway through i knew that you know norman was the killer i knew that norman's mother was dead and i picked all this up through pop cultural osmosis um, and, you know, I mean, I, even in 1998, when I saw this film, I wouldn't have considered myself to be a huge or active film buff. It's mm-hmm. just stuff that was kind of in the culture. I mean, we joked about when we talked about the shower scene, how much of Psycho I saw through The Simpsons, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I do wonder if, like, given that so much of, like, selling Psycho 98 is based on audience familiarity and recognition and the idea again that that paradox that you have where you know psycho 1960 was sold to audiences on the idea that audiences wanted a new experience wanted mm-hmm. something exciting something interesting something unlike some anything they'd ever seen before something that they were going to queue up outside and have to arrive on time and be shocked and horrified by whereas in 1998 when you're selling it to audiences the central appeal is actually here's something that either you have already seen before or you have passively absorbed through pop culture to the point where it feels like you've already seen it before. And again, I think that when it was, before it was released, and again, this is one of the fascinating things about it, is that Vincent apparently insisted on privacy and secrecy while shooting the film, uh, which is ironic given, you know, again, this discussion <laughs> of whether or not it is shot for shot or, or scene for scene or line by line. But it's very much, it is a film that is, very much like the movie that you could have rented in a video store throughout its production. But you have this idea that, like, I think that before it was released, there was rumors that the movie was going to veer sharply in the second half, that it would be a shot-for-shot remake up until the shower scene, and then everything would go crazy. Uh, Which, again, feels kind of weird in the context of the movie we actually got. But I I do think that that trailer thing that you mentioned where it gives away who Norman is and kind of what Norman, you know, what Norman's issue is and that he is the killer... I think that that's understanding the inverted commas appeal, or at least the hypothetical appeal of a remake like this, which is here is something where you're buying a ticket to exactly what you expect or exactly what you've been promised. There's no unpleasant surprises here. There's nothing here that won't meet your expectations. There's nothing here that will catch you off guard or make you feel particularly uncomfortable, which again, you know, is something that modern Hollywood has arguably just gotten much, much better at in the intervening 22 years. Mm. It's interesting because I think when earlier when you were talking about what Van Sant, you know, why he said he wanted to make the film and so on, I think publicly in the late 90s, I think he was singing a slightly different tune. I think what he was saying back then, from what I've seen, was more like, Psycho is a great, great film, but sadly, not everybody today knows about it and so on. And to me, I imagine he's been slightly disingenuous there because 
of all the films from 1960 you could say that about, Psycho is probably the one that it doesn't apply to. Where's my shot for shot remake of The Apartment, damn it? Yeah, or, or whatever. You know, I think, I think, like we discussed the last time we spoke, um, the fact that like my 12-year-old son in 2020 knows of the shower scene somehow is really fascinating to me. And like, will that still be the case in, in 2030 or 2040? Will kids still know about Psycho? I don't know. But I think in 98, I don't think, yeah, I think most people going in would, would have known... They may not have seen Psycho. They would have known what was coming, I think. And the, the marketing plays into that. In terms um, of, sorry, in ter- just in terms of what he mentioned there, actually, again, I, we didn't mention this earlier, but it is worth noting in this context. You had things like the, and again, it's arguably still a concern, but things about the fear of black and white, the idea that, you know, kids yeah. won't see black and white movies or even adults won't go and see black and white movies, for example. So you had things like Ted Turner colorizing It's a Wonderful Life, for example, during the 80s, I believe. And yeah. so you could, you could you could argue that like Vincent's Psycho is just a logical extension of kind yeah. of Ted Turner's campaign to colorize cinema, where it just kind of instead of like using color techniques or using kind of technological techniques to prevent a color version of this black and white movie that might be too old for viewers, instead it it actually just refilms it with new actors um, and occasional references to things <laughs> like Walkman and you know Viggo Mortensen's ass, which is what everybody wants, right? And just sort of says, yeah. hey, yep, yeah, this is this is it we've colorized psycho um and it's kind of i do wonder like because again like you have to reckon whatever vincent thought and again he, he's he has arguably changed his tune at variable various points throughout you have to imagine that the studio green lighting this the executives at universal the people ponying up the dough were probably thinking along those lines we're thinking yeah. like psycho probably great we're all in this business because we love movies um we love psycho but, you know, my kids don't want to watch Psycho because it's an old movie in black and white. So what if, and hear me out, what if we just remake <laughs> it, this classic of cinema, shot for shot, yeah. but it's in color with hip actors like Vince Vaughn. The kids love Vince Vaughn, right? Um, and Anne Hesch. And just boom, we just release it in cinemas and we just roll in the money afterwards. I do wonder how much of that was kind of like a driving force. Maybe not for Van Sant, but maybe a little bit higher up the food chain. Like yeah. if Psycho worked... Do you think we would have seen, you know, m- more shot-for-shot color remakes of kind of like black and white cinema? Would, would like, God forbid, would have a color remake of Casablanca have emerged? I don't know. I wonder if it would have been like The Artist, if it had been this great success. You know how The Artist didn't really lead to oh. a glut of contemporary silent comedies. But I think it's more, I think it's possible that, yeah, we could have had Casablanca or, I don't know, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um just before we move on, though, to some of these, you know, you talked a bit about how like things like The Lion King sort of show this, this weird kind of um, present-day comparison to Psycho 98. But just simpler, on simple terms, we talked a bit about Hesh and Vaughn. What do you think about the supporting characters here, then? Because I think some of them get the job done a bit more effectively than the leads. You know, In, in particular, I quite liked William H. Macy's take on Arbogast. I like Julianne Moore as a Lila who's a bit more aggressive than Vera Miles' Lila. Yeah. I mean, the original Lila was fairly proactive in her own right, to be fair. I suppose you could argue these performers have a slightly easier task in the sense that, you know, they're playing characters who, as conceived, were arguably a bit more functional compared to Marion and Norman, and their characters never became quite as indelible in cultural terms. 
so they don't have the same kind of baggage. But yeah, what do you think? Who stands out to you from those supporting actors? Quite literally, the two the two you just mentioned. Uh, somehow, Viggo Mortensen seems like he predates the 1960 Sam Loomis, which is quite an accomplishment whatsoever. Again, it's one of those <laughs> things where the movie, despite being set in 1998, looks like it's set in 1990. Yeah, it looks like it's set in 1960 by way of 1998, where you have him with the sideburns and the hair gel and stuff like that. He looks almost like a greaser. Um, but again, it, it is William H. Macy is one of the standouts um in large part because and again this is one of the things where it feels like you know when you're watching a movie and it feels like one of the supporting actors has figured out the wavelength of the movie and has figured out like what the movie's going for and what it's doing where like arbogast does not seem like a real person and again you you point out that he is a function as much as a character he's largely just a way of moving the plot along now you know i think he's great fun in both versions of the movie but macy you know doesn't it doesn't seem like macy approached like arbogast with like kind of a a stanislavski kind of method approach (laughs) where it's like i need to figure out what drives this character inside his head what his motivation is how i string together a coherent characterization from the you know what the script is given me instead macy seems to look at the movie around him is like okay so it's 1998 it's also 1960 i can work with that because he really <laughs> does feel like he's wandered out of something like a nine like dick tracy yeah, to pick well, an example the hat, the hat <laughs> makes him immediately anachronistic doesn't it yeah, yeah the hat and even the, the style of performance and again like you'll probably notice it if you watch again i think it's it's that uh is it the the skulk kind of like editing comparison where you can see them shot for shot but even yeah. things like the, the way in which his, his face is framed during that wonderful introduction and again mm. it, it's what the moment when i really flash back to the 1960 version of psycho isn't the shower scene it's the moment where William H. Macy's face takes up the whole of the frame as he walks into the department store because again that's one of the things where it's very much like a Hitchcock shot um, in that it's incredibly in your face and very much like well the audience is going to look at this and they're not going to be able to look away and again, Macy seems to be on that wavelength where he's he's a bit more flamboyant than the other characters. He's a bit more of a character in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. He's prone to gesture. He's a bit more frantic. He's a bit more heightened. Again, you know, a sense of cartoonishness to him almost, which which I think really, really works. Uh, Macy's fantastic. And particularly in the 90s when Macy was kind of one of the great supporting actors, I think he does really, really, really good work here. And Moore is, Moore is very good as well. And I think that, yeah, you're right. That, that Leila Crane in the original, you know, perhaps deserves more credit for being proactive. I do think that one of the smarter yeah. things that the 1998 Psycho does is that it allows uh, Leila to be a little bit more, even a little bit more assertive. Um, and again, one of the senses in which the movie acknowledges the time has moved on. And it's not entirely Julianne Moore's kind of performance, although I think that it, it, it might, you know, a large part of it is. But little things like her kind of shrugging off of kind of Loomis's arm as he tries to wrap that around her and protect her. And little gestures like that. Or the fact that like at the climax, she gets to kick Norman or gets to kind of punch Norman. Uh, while sort of Sam is holding him down and stuff like that, do make her feel a little bit more aggressive or assertive. And again, that slight sense that time has changed in that, like what we accepted or expect from a female protagonist in in you know 1960. Yeah. What was you know what was very very good to be absolutely clear. What was a strong like female supporting protagonist uh, in 1960? You know, in 1998 would feel 
quite dated and would feel very much kind of below the minimum bar. So you have yeah. this sense of kind of having to, to kind of push up a little bit. I think that like Layla Crane is a good example of the film kind of giving an inch, the film actually allowing itself to be updated, you know, to a certain extent. Was it that, that one of the big changes in the film is that the Bates Motel says newly renovated and it really <laughs> feels like the, the major renovation in the film is the fact that Layla Crane is allowed to be a little bit more assertive because like, you know, whatever about Anne Hesh's wardrobe, you know, uh, the thing that we really wouldn't buy in 1998 was this sort of passive supporting protagonist. Or, you know, not yeah. not, not not passive. That's not fair to the 1960 version. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, also, though, I think I think as, as much as I like Moore's take on the character, I don't really buy her as Anne Hesh's sister. <laughs> Like in the same, in in the Hitchcock film, I think it was very calculated what he was doing and going from a star to a character actor. But you could buy them as sisters. Uh, I don't really get that here, you know. They should have cast Jodie Foster then in in the lead role of Marion Crane. That, that would have been very interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so in the fullness of time, then, so Psycho came and went, but Van Sant's talked about it more recently. I think there's a good interview with him on uh, Mark Maron's uh, podcast. And a, a quote about it is, he said, so it didn't work, but the idea was whether or not you could remake something and it would repeat the box office. That was the sort of weird science experiment. Uh, so in those terms, it didn't really succeed. So it didn't do big off big box office. I think Van Sant has said, I believe, that it basically broke even after a certain amount of time. Um, but he also goes on to say that it's more alive now than it was back when it failed, just with the art world or the modern world. And I think he's got a point. So, yeah, I just wanted to touch briefly on Soderbergh's uh, Psychos, which I know you've already brought up, Darren. But uh, this weird mashup from 2014. So black and white for the most part. It does lapse into color, in uh, particularly in the murder sequences. It solves the Vince Vaughn problem <laughs> for the most part <laughs> by keeping him off screen. And when he is on screen, he's not talking, which is good. Um, and it trims the length down to under an hour and a half. So... It's really interesting, isn't it? Like, he lets individual scenes play out for the most part, like you said, but those very interesting moments like you also referred to, like you cut from 98 Marion looking out of a car windscreen to the 1960 Mr. Lowry stood in the road, you know. So I found it irresistible. I think Psychos succeeds in a lot of ways where Psycho 1998 doesn't. Yeah. Because it, like, foregrounds that relationship to the 60 Psycho in even more explicit terms than the remake does. But he's not, Soderbergh's not trying to make a commercial entertainment, you know. This is uploaded to his website. It's freely available to view. Yeah, but I found I found it massively enjoyable, honestly. I did. I actually thought that again. It's 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 very much the context for which the experiment, you know, in Psycho ninety eight ninety eight makes sense. It's the kind of the write up of the experiment. It's the kind of like it's putting it in its place and assessing the results of the experiment in a way that kind of tangibly makes sense of it all. And again, one of the things that I think the movie does, or the kind of Psychos does really well, is that despite the fact that it does open with the nineteen ninety eight kind of shot, you know, the kind of like the Friday the 11th December 1998 and that wonderful shot that you mentioned with the kind of trick that goes through the window yeah. it a lot of what it does is very much anchored in the style of the 1960s so a lot of its establishing shots for example a lot of its street shots for example are typically come from the 1960 version as opposed to the 2000 mm -hmm. or the 1998 version so for example you know you mentioned that scene where marion's driving and she looks out the window and she sees her boss from the 1960 version for example which gives yeah. you that sense of it being like you know phoenix arizona in 1960 being a very different place or even things like say the highway patrolman pulling over and again the highway patrolman is a fast 
fascinating supporting character in large part because you know James Ramar really feels like he stepped out of the 1960 psycho yes. it's the one moment where you feel like if you put those two sequences together in black and white I would have a bit of difficulty mm-hmm. telling you which one was which um, but like even in that sequence the establishing shots the car are the 1960s kind of like retro kind of like police car and all this what this does is it kind of makes the case I think that we kind of we talked about earlier that like Psycho 1998 feels like a snapshot of a kind of a moment in time and that moment in time has moved on where it feels like it takes something that was radical in 1960 and which in 1998 just seems old hat and understands that like in order to make it work you can't you have to put it back in that context so you know Marion has to be driving through 1960 yeah. Phoenix, even if she's played by Anne Hesch, for example. And the highway patrolman, you know, has to be driving around a 1960s car, even if he's played by James Renard, James Ramar, because, mm-hmm. you know, that's the, that's the way in which all of this makes sense. And again, it's, it's worth noting that like the, the sequences in which, uh, Soderbergh, because Soderbergh's very generally quite restrained. He will play entire scenes uh, yeah. out with these characters. And we you know with a few inserts here and there, or a few kind of cross cuts in conversation and stuff like that. But generally speaking, it's a scene from one movie followed by a scene from another movie mm-hmm. all the way through. Uh, but he does blur at the murder scenes, which is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, he actually like will overlay the shots with one another. And as you mentioned, he allows color to kind of bleed back into the film in those points. And those are actually really, really striking. And they're striking for a number of reasons. First of all, they're actually viscerally unsettling. Uh, For some reason, the fact that you're watching two murders unfolding simultaneously overlapping with one another is incredibly unsettling visually in terms of processing it as a piece of information. Uh, But also because it it kind of does something that I think Vincent tried to do in his recreation of the murder scenes uh, in like the shower sequence, for example, or the murder of Arbogast uh, in the house, which is where you have these kind of quick shots of kind of like abstract yeah. imagery, like clouds on the horizon, a woman in a kind of a bondage mask, a cow, a cow in the middle in the of her. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, which I think are supposed to represent, I don't know, the abstract cruelty and nonsense of the universe, the weirdness <laughs> that runs through your head as you're getting brutally murdered by Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Uh, you know, this sort of stuff. It, it's an attempt to recreate the kind of insanity of the original 1960 Psycho, and it doesn't work. It feels like somebody watched Millennium and took Prozac and decided to make <laughs> that version of like a serial killer movie. But like what, what happens is when you have the two images overlaid with one another, particularly because like, you know, we discussed the extent to which maybe shot by shot is unfair or frame by frame is unfair. But like, generally speaking, in the shower sequence, Vincent is pretty close yeah. um, to emulating shot for shot, frame by frame, line by line, the kind of killing scene, you know, the, the murder scene. So you have this kind of image where it's almost but not quite the exact same image overlaid with one another, which makes it seem almost kind of ghostly and haunting. And I think it's very, very evocative and, mm. and very unsettling. It kind of makes a, an interesting point in the way that I don't think Psycho 98 does, which is, like, how often have we been watching Marion Crane get murdered? How often have we seen movies 
you know, emulating Psycho, but with less finesse and less skill. How much of this kind of echoes through film history? How much of this kind of, how many of these beats have played out? How many of these shots have been borrowed? How many kind of like cheap movies have been made trying to capitalize or trying to emulate kind of the success of that, that moment and kind of failing to do it? And, you know, are there legions of kind of these murdered women in kind of modern cinema as a result of that, that original kind of psycho shower scene? It's very effective. Um, and it's, it's arguably manages to accomplish you know something that if you're being incredibly generous you might say psycho 98 was trying or kind of grasping at but didn't manage to do um and so it is absolutely striking i would almost recommend watching psychos ahead of watching um psycho 1998 (laughs) i do think as well it's interesting how much psycho 1998 um, and again, this is with with apologies to Christopher Doyle, the cinematographer, um, who does do good work with color. Like I think that I, I think visually, you know, I think that while we can argue about what the meaning of the use of color in the film is, I think it looks quite good in places. Yeah. But I think it's it's I think it's telling how much of the film you lose by putting it in color because yeah. when you see the exact same shots rendered in black and white by Soderbergh for Psychos, they they click a lot better. And maybe this is down to this kind of like facsimile slash recreation thing that we talked about, where it's impossible to recreate Psycho, where even putting the exact same shot with the exact same actor in the exact same position, saying the exact same line, you know, in color rather than black and white is fundamentally different or uncanny. If you took the color out, all of a sudden it feels like it fits Mm. a lot better, uh, which is kind of interesting, you know, and kind of maybe gets at something that if we're going to talk about Disney reacts in a moment, we might kind of hint at, which is the idea that, you know, even if you incredibly faithfully recreate something, changing even one aspect of it. So, you know, in the concept of the the Disney remakes, we talked about shifting from, you know, animation as a medium to live action. But even in, you know, Psycho 98, shifting from the exact same shot with the exact same position, with the exact same blocking, with the exact same music, with the exact same lighting, but doing it in color rather than doing it in black and white fundamentally alters it and the audience's relation to and perception of it. And again, fascinating, fascinating to kind of think about, fascinating to unpack. Mm. Sorry to ramble. No, no, no. Um, I think the thing, I agree with the the Psycho 98 shower sequence about the things, you know, these inserts, I don't really like them. I don't think they work particularly well. The aspect of of the shower scene that I did think worked quite well is that Van San actually lets it play out for about 10 seconds longer before the murderer pulls back the curtain, you know, and I was watching it and because I've watched the original psycho four or five times recently for these other podcasts (laughs) I've been doing, I was kind of anticipating the moment and he kept me waiting. I thought that was an effective way to keep viewers on their toes, you know? He does also uh, position, I think he positions Marion much close to the center of the frame, which is an interesting choice um, as well, which is kind of striking. I think that Hitchcock pushes her to the edge or the margin or the bottom corner of the frame, which is a choice. And I think that it, it works very well. I think that it's interesting that one of like Vincent's big change in that sequence is how he positions Marion as the center, which is ironic given that I think that Hesh is actually probably smaller um, than Lee um, as well. Now, just on Psycho's 2014. Um, so yeah, that easy for people to see it if they do want to. I'd recommend it as well. Extension765.com, I think is Soderbergh's uh, website. Um, the other interesting thing about it, Darren, is like we said that the 98 Psycho runs at one hour uh, you know, a few minutes shorter than the 60 Psycho, despite having a three or four minute credit sequence. And then Psycho's 2014 runs about a quarter of an hour shorter than that, at one hour 25. It was interesting to me. I was wondering how Soderbergh was going to do that. To me, it seemed like he was cutting down the second half of the film quite a bit. You know, um, he also cuts out the church scene. 
he cuts into scenes like the first introduction to the sheriff about halfway through and stuff like that. So I was wondering if that was kind of a sign that what Soderbergh's really interested in is like the first half of Psycho, you know. But I think it's just to, to re-emphasize, if you do watch Psychos, it's not massive in terms of a time investment, I suppose. Yeah, and, and it's very accessible. And again, if you've seen, arguably, I think you, you might argue that you get better value out of like Psycho 98 watching it packaged as Psychos than you do watching it by itself. Um, I, w- I would also argue that as well. Okay, so in terms of the Disney remakes, and yeah, I think that's that's interesting too. So it seems to me, just from what I've quickly had a look at this afternoon, and I went to see The Lion King, the new one, when it came out and so on, it seems to me like there's still some resistance to this idea. These very, not, you know, shot for shot, we said maybe it's strictly inaccurate, but it's fairly close as an interpretive kind of description. Um, still some resistance, but maybe not as much as before. So for example... Todd McCarthy's review in The Hollywood Reporter of The Lion King, he draws a comparison to Psycho 1998. He basically talks about how safe the new film is. Um, and then there are people like Peter DeBruge in Variety who liked the new version of The Lion King and said that Favreau's most important responsibility in overseeing the remake was simply not to mess it up, which he doesn't. Which is like a far cry from, this is sacrilegious, this should never have been made, what's the point, etc., which greeted Psycho 98. So... And is that the sense you get then, that faithful remakes are no longer dismissed quite so much as they once were, and not least by the audience, I guess, because things like The Lion King are doing tremendously well, aren't they, in, in box office yeah. terms, yeah. Yeah, among the highest grossing films of the year, which is, you know, an incredible accomplishment. And I do, and I think it kind of speaks to, again, this sense of kind of like weird postmodernism that you had. Again, I feel like, you know, Psycho 98 was perhaps a little bit ahead of its time. I think in that interview that you mentioned with Mark Maron, he did say that, you know, it's it's arguably a, a document that feels truer watching it today than it mm. did when it was actually made, where you have this sense in which, you know, for a large section of the audience, the idea of faithfulness um, is important. The idea of fidelity is important. And again, you, you see it with adaptations where the opposite, you know, where the opposite is true, where you have departures from what came before. So say, for example, the new version of Perry Mason, which is kind of like dark and gritty and, and odd. And people are like, they changed it. Why would you change it? Just give me exactly what I want. Or arguably, you could say what's happening with, say, Star Trek, uh, where, you know, it's yeah. like, oh my god, this is so different from what came before. Why can't we have Star Trek that was like the Star Trek I grew up with? Why can't we faithfully recreate what came before? And again, I think that like things like The Lion King are very much kind of part of that. I do think what's interesting, what's probably the difference between Psycho and those movies, and again, arguably, you know, outside of the fact that Psycho arrived 20 years earlier than them, mm-hmm. I think the difference is that like Psycho 60 was an experience for... One, you know, one hopes in inverted commas adults in that it's very much yeah. a horror movie or slasher movie. So the target audience for people like that, hopefully there weren't too many six-year-olds in the audience having a formative cinematic <laughs> experience. And therefore you approach it with like as as an adult and, and with that yeah. weight and with that burden coming from it, where you understand what it is for you, you know, intellectually, even as you understand it emotionally. So it is an artifact of itself. Whereas, you know, something like The Lion King or something like Star Trek, you know, for many people, would have watched Star Trek as kids or as teenagers. And so it's something that, you know, you kind of lock into as a child. And it's like, okay, actually, this is what Star Trek was always meant to be. Or this is, you know, The Lion King. This is what entertainment for kids was always meant to be. And so, like, having it recreated plays into a different sort of nostalgia where you actually want to be taken back to the experience of watching it as a child because, you know, you you didn't really have any problems watching it as a child. You were happy when you were a child. This was part of that happiness. So why wouldn't you want to see this? That sort of packaging mm-hmm. of it, as opposed to Psycho, which is is a much different film to kind of package in that sense, perhaps, I think. Um, yeah. I do think that there is something interesting in that it, it, it also demonstrates kind of 
along with something like, say, Zack Snyder's Watchmen, uh, which is another kind of arguable experiment in this context, and that Zack Snyder's Watchmen is an incredibly faithful adaptation of the um, original comic book in terms of dialogue and in terms of imagery. It somewhat muddles some of the themes and core kind of like subtext of the of the adaptation, but it's incredibly faithful in terms of lines, in terms of production design, and in terms of kind of like borrowing actual panels from the comic. And it illustrates the sense in which, you know, the magic of a film or a story um, isn't necessarily something that is reproducible or is it something that could be kind of like mass produced or factory assembled i mean there's the um there's a story i read actually in one of the discussions of psycho um it's an old parable about a king who calls together the greatest chef in in, you know in in the in his kingdom and says um the best meal that i ever ate um, was when i was a kid you know i was starving and i found these berries and i made them into a pie and it was the most delicious meal that i ever had and i want you the best chef in the kingdom to make that pie for me. And the chef says, look, I can go to the place where you found the berries. I can make sure the soil is exactly the same as it was all those years ago. I can cook it on an open fire like you did. I can use even the same pan that you did. But you are a king now, not a starving child. And it will not taste the same to you. Um, And it will not be the meal that you ate. And again, the Psycho 98 feels like it's it's proof of that. It's proof that like you can put together as many incredibly faithful elements of an original beloved work of art as possible and not recreate the impossible kind of frisson of it. Mm-hmm. And whether that frisson is a result of elements within the film, and we talked about things like the performances, for example, or elements outside of the film. And we talked about things like, you know, that the idea that, you know, Marion Crane was a radical character in 1960, but seems rather unimpressive in the context of 1998, rather unexceptional yeah. in the context of 1998, and therefore changes the entire meaning of it. And I think that, like, I, I find myself, I... I'm glad that people enjoy the Disney remakes of, of movies like Aladdin and the Lion King. And I'm glad that they mean a lot to people, and particularly to young kids, um, to be absolutely honest. I'm really glad that kids who see those movies seem to actually really, really like them. I think that's amazing. But I do find myself wary of the idea that the primary work of a remake or reboot or adaptation or reimagining is to faithfully recreate yeah. the memory of what came before. I think that the most interesting adaptations are those that have something new to say or something that finds something in the original work that speaks to this moment in a different way or different context than they did when it was originally made or produced. And I think that, and again, this is one of the things where I think Psycho 98 deserves you know, credit um, because it was ahead of the curve, but also, you know, was perhaps a harbinger of something far more cynical and depressing than I think Vincent intended, which is the idea that, you know, making a soulless, lavish adaptation is an end unto itself. Where the, you know, Vincent, I think, to give him credit, did this as an experiment to test the limitations to see if it was possible and to realize that it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Hollywood. Um, and modern studio system has realized that actually it is possible and you can make a shed load of money out of it. And yeah. why wouldn't you do it continuously yes. forever? Um, and <laughs> yeah. it is, 
kind of bleak and kind of depressing. I think that like that was my big surprise rewatching Psycho ninety eight uh, for this podcast was how how much it felt. How like I didn't remember it when I saw it in nineteen ninety eight. I just had a faint mm-hmm. memory of having seen it. Yeah. In two thousand eighteen, I was like, "This, this, <laughs> this is where we are." This is like Hollywood finally caught up with Gus Van Sant and not for the love of art, uh, which is quite striking. Um, and perhaps like uh, something both great and terrible about the film's legacy. Mm. I think as just as I said before, I just don't think he quite squared the circle in terms of his objectives. I think this remains a fascinating film. I can't recommend it to listeners wholeheartedly. I am continually fascinated by it. I've seen yeah. this film about four times. I will confess. Yeah. Um, I watched it about three times for this podcast. To be honest, I watched oh, really? it kind of yeah one, once to once to get a sense of it. Once after watching Psycho sixty again, and once after watching Psychos as well, just so I I didn't end up accidentally talking about Psychos. Um, and again, it's it's not a good film. It's not a film that I would recommend to anybody who enjoys good cinema or is looking for anything entertaining. But it is an amazing document. Um, it's an amazing piece of work. It's an amazing experiment. Um, it's an amazing art installation, yeah. uh, basically. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, and I think that's a good place to end, uh, Darren. So before we uh, go for good, uh, where can people find you online? All right. Um, so you can follow me online at Darren, unders- Darren underscore Mooney. Um, I write at The Escapist magazine uh, online where I write twice weekly. I also write at my own movie blog uh, called The Movie Blog with a zero instead of a no in the word movie as well. But if you Google me, you can find me online there as well. So please feel free to come chat to me. I co-host a podcast with my good friend Andrew Quinn called The 250 where we chat through the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time, one at a time. Um, and the week that this is being released, um, keep in mind that the schedule has to be adjusted because I'm fairly sure Hamilton is going to arrive as a surprise new entry uh but i think that the saturday after this is released if you want a bit of a change of pace from psycho myself and andrew will be joining the wonderful uh ronan doyle and fantastic jay coyle to talk about richard gears 2008 doggy classic hatchy a dog's tail yes um an essential entry in what ronan doyle has termed the new good boy canon i think All right, Darren, cheers for that. Um, Always great to talk to you. I hope it's not too long until we uh, speak again somewhere. Uh, Listeners, we have one more installment of The Summer of Psycho to come. Uh, On the next episode, I'm going to be talking about the 2012 Hitchcock biopic, simply called Hitchcock, with uh, Anthony Hopkins, of course, Helen Mirren, Scarlett Johansson, etc. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Until then, you can find the podcast in all the usual places, on Twitter, at MoviePalacePod, also on Facebook, also on Instagram. Um, but that's it for today. I hope you can join me next time, listeners, when the curtain rises once again at the Movie Palace. Elsewhere, and we made this. Back to the decade. Now, Inception is a movie that we talked about in the first episode when we were covering our five favorite films of the year. That's a film that I know that both of us 
love a lot. I think we maybe both had it at number one. So that'll be exciting to talk about. Did I? Did I have it at number one? I don't know. I think you did. Either it was like number one or number two. I think we talked about it at the same time just because they were both, they were both kind of in the same mix. I feel like I said, no, it is not my number one because I knew it would be your number one. So I will choose something different. So you wanted to be different. Yeah. Well, that's fine. We played this. What was the most recent game that you've played? Oh, sorry. Is that your laptop fan? Yes. I know it sounds like someone's vacuuming in the next room. I apologize. I'm able to remove it all from the edit, but it is very, very loud. I actually, um, doing this Zencaster thing the other day, I actually heard what it sounds like from your end for the first time, and it's horrendous. I apologize. (laughs) No, it's fine. I I was just checking. Um, (laughs) So, is that literal last game you played, or...? Pretty Fly. A 90s nostalgia podcast. Do you have an Arnie, <laughs> an Arnie impersonation under your belt? That went more John Howard by the end. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, it reminded me of an old full frontal gig where they had uh, a pretty fly for a PM and they, <laughs> they did a Johnny Howard impersonation. Oh, uh, hey, are we ruling out John Howard as, uh, uh, as John Hammond? Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network.